Welcome. Welcome to any first-time visitors as well. Would you join me as I begin this time of preaching and prayer? Lord Jesus, we come into your presence this morning in awe and worship of who you are, our Lord and our Savior and our King. We come into your presence grateful for your gift of salvation. Thank you for your word to guide us in ways of righteousness. Thank you for this church and for the many ways you have blessed us. As we open up your word this morning, I ask for your Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts and in our minds. We ask that you will strengthen our church in unity. We ask this in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, for anyone visiting here this morning, we've been preaching through the letter of 1 Peter. And for the past few Sundays, uh, we've been studying uh, specific instructions Peter has been giving to groups of people. We, we saw instructions to citizens, and we, we saw instructions to servants, and we saw instructions to, uh, to wives, and then last week to husbands. This morning's passage is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, where Peter concludes this list of instructions by addressing every believer. The passage begins, finally, all of you. So unlike some other sermons, it would be hard for you if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to leave here this morning and say, well, I, I, didn't, I don't think I heard anything that really applies to me today. This passage applies to each of you if you have put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And I should just say, if you're here this morning and that is not you, if you, if you are still exploring the faith, if you are someone um, who's interested but has not made that commitment. This passage uh, is an opportunity for us as a church to show you the hope that we have in Jesus Christ by the way we interact with each other and the way we interact with the world. So I hope that it's not just God's Word that moves you to that, but also how you see the church interact with each other. If you haven't already Please open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3 and follow along. Follow along as I read our passage this morning, beginning in verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This passage lists essential character traits for every follower of Jesus Christ. And these, character, these characteristics are also building blocks for unity within the body of Christ, the church. So as believers, we ought to long for and work to develop these character traits 
because they demonstrate obedience to God's word and reveal the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And when we as a church collectively make these virtues a priority, we will naturally move closer in unity. I hope you see that this morning and that you believe it. Do you want to be more like Jesus? Then pray for and cultivate sympathy, love, tenderness, and humility in your life. And do we, GFC, do we want to experience the blessings of unity in Jesus Christ? Do we want to be a spiritually healthy church? Do we want to be a light in our community? Do we want our church to be faithful to Scripture and honor our Lord Jesus as we face a hostile culture? Then each one of us should be praying for and cultivating unity of mind, sympathy, love, tenderness, and humility. This might be one of the most challenging, exhausting, Import, most important sermons I've preached. Not because the text is difficult. The passage is actually pretty straightforward. It's a hard text because it's so convicting. I've certainly been convicted by it. And it's so important because the health of our church is at stake. So I've been praying this week that we'll be moved by God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. Moved to embrace a vision for our church where we are united in Christ. And as the Holy Spirit does a work in and through us, I pray that our church will be a living example of God's love and mercy and hope to the world around us. I can summarize the message this morning like this. Fulfilling God's command for unity applies to each of us and requires love and humility. I've chosen to organize the message today like this. First, we'll look at instructions for Christians relating to Christians. Then we'll look at instructions for Christians relating to the world. And we'll conclude with an encouragement for Christians to faithfully persevere. And in case you're someone who keeps an eye on time, my focus today is on the first point. So don't panic. So we're going to devote most of our time today. I counted 13 instructions in this passage. And while some are more applicable to Christians relating to the world, I would submit to you that each one of them applies to Christians relating to Christians. Our emphasis this morning is on the first command in verse 8, have unity of mind. This command is clearly applied between believers, right, because we would not have unity of mind with the world. The NIV translates this phrase to be like-minded. The NASB's translation is be harmonious. The command is about our relationship with other believers, especially within our own church. We ought to be like-minded and harmonious. When you think of harmony, maybe you think of music, like me. My daughter, the, the music student here, gave me this definition of harmony from masterclass.com. Harmony is the composite product when individual voices group together to form a cohesive whole. And I would add that the cohesive whole is even more beautiful than any one voice alone. Or think of a symphony, each musician playing their specific part, but even more beautiful when each part is put together harmoniously. 
God instituted the church intending for us to function like an an orchestra, harmoniously. In fact, that was one of the last things Jesus prayed for before dying on the cross. In John 17, Jesus knew his hour of suffering and dying had come. He spent those final few hours with his disciples, preparing them for what would soon take place. And he ended that time with his disciples by praying, first for them and then for future believers, you and me. And his prayer for future believers was that we would be perfectly one so that the world will know that Jesus was sent by God because of God's great love for them. John 17, 21 to 23. Jesus' prayer, his most urgent prayer before he would die, was that his followers and future followers would be unified as a witness to God's great love. The importance of unity among believers is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament. Just a couple examples. Paul instructed the Romans, as we heard just read, to live in harmony with one another. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. To the Ephesians, Paul urged the church to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul wrote to the Philippians that he desired they stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. To Timothy and Titus, Paul warned against foolish controversies, quarrels, and dissensions within their churches. I could go on, but hopefully you get the point. A critical measurement of the health and faithfulness of our church is our unity. I have two important points of clarification. One is this. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Having unity of mind does not mean we're all alike. That would be like going to, to hear a symphony, but when the curtain is raised, it's just a bunch of trombone players who all play the same notes in unison. Praise God, within our unity, we also have diversity. Paul developed this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, addressing spiritual gifts. Paul wrote that there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Our unity is in the same Lord and God that we serve. We aren't united because we all share the same gifts or serve in the same way. We're united because we have the same Lord. In fact, Paul labors here to emphasize that God gives a variety of spiritual gifts and ministries to the individual members of the church. The principle holds true for diversity and age, race, ethnicity, personality, profession, income, political views, hobbies, and interests. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 give us a glimpse into the diversity of those who are united in Jesus. Seeing a vision of heaven, John records, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and every tribe and peoples and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a beautiful picture of diversity within unity. A crowd of uniquely different people representing every nation, tribe, and language. That's diversity. But they are all facing the throne of God in worship. That's unity. A second point of clarification. We do not sacrifice truth in order to achieve unity in the church. There are core doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith. Not accepting these core doctrines means you have strayed from the Christian faith. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, an essential doctrine of our faith. The doctrine of, tr of the Trinity, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Rejecting these doctrines means rejecting Christianity. The church can't water down the gospel in an effort to live harmoniously with as many people as possible. The call for unity is for Christians relating to Christians. Now at the risk of being overly nuanced, there are doctrinal positions where Christians may legitimately disagree. But the call for unity still applies because we do agree on the core doctrines of the faith. Now here I'll, I'll uh, give credit to a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. He labels these doctrines as second tier, third tier, and fourth tier doctrines. That doesn't mean they're less important. It just means that well-intentioned, God-honoring Christians can hold differing views and still be united in Jesus Christ. Just one example of this that's fairly current is how to apply scripture to Governor Pritzker's recent mask mandate. The pastors here had multiple discussions with each other and were in contact with other pastors in the area as we processed that and concluded that thoughtful, faithful believers can hold differing positions, which is why we left it up to our a congregation, to each one of you, to prayerfully consider the matter for yourself. The point here is that having unity of mind means we share a common faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and we share a common desire to faithfully honor, serve, obey, and worship him. Now, sadly, I think that fractures within a church body are often a result of disagreeing over matters of preference, tradition, and opinion. Consider a church that wrestles with worship music on Sunday morning. Do you do hymns? Do you do contemporary worship songs? Do you do a combination of both? Do you play the organ? Do you play a piano? Do you play a keyboard? Do the, uh, these uh, are issues of preference. Singing, of course, is clearly biblical. That's non-negotiable. But what specific songs are sung, instruments used, PowerPoint or hymnal, none of these are doctrinal issues. There can be loving disagreement on these matters within the same church body. Now, fortunately, no one here at Gospel Fellowship Church holds strong opinions. So, <laughs> no? 
Okay, I know we're all thinking of the same person. Um, <laughs> so, what are some issues on which well-intentioned believers in this church body that may hold differing positions on? Maybe it's how many extracurricular activities your family commits to, or how to keep the Sabbath day holy. Maybe it's the right age for young people to begin dating, or whether you choose to homeschool, private school, or public school, or the benefit of college or graduate school, the candidate I support, vaccines, masks, Cubs fans, Sox fans, the evils of gluten. None of these, <laughs> none of these, pref uh, none of these preference issues ought to divide us, except for 30 minutes when the gluten people, free people can go in that room over there. But outside of that, none of these preference issues should divide us. Like someday, each one of us, with our differing opinions, preferences, and traditions, are going to stand before the throne of God together in worship. We should be practicing that unity now. I occasionally hear GFC described as homeschool-friendly or the homeschool church, as if that's the doctrine that unites us. Now, let me tell you something publicly. We ought to be homeschool-friendly, private school-friendly, public school-friendly, mentor-friendly, tutor-friendly, trade school-friendly, community college-friendly, gap year-friendly. We even invite Wheaton College students here. These are all matters of preference. So how do we foster unity within our own diverse and opinionated church body? I'd like to remind you, if you're a member here, these are commitments that you made to each other. It's from our membership affirmation of commitment. You can find this on our website. Members, with the Lord's help, commit to praying for the unity of the Spirit and for peace walking together in Christian love, using our gifts to serve and bless this church family, loving one another in brotherly love, praying for one another and aiding one another, striving to avoid gossip and unrighteous anger, desiring to be slow to take offense, desiring to think the best of one another and being ready for biblical reconciliation. These are commitments of unity within this church body. And I'm grateful for the many ways this church prays for each other, cares for each other, encourages each other. It's been a blessing to me. Been going, I'm coming here nine years, I think. Can, countless times I've been so blessed by members of this church. At the same time, I think the stress and uncertainty and unrest of the past 18 months has damaged the unity of our church. I think we've elevated certain issues of preference and opinions to be hills we die on. And the collateral damage includes strained relationships, hurtful words, and judgmental attitudes. Remember, Peter was writing to Christians who were dispersed throughout Rome and who were under scrutiny for their faith. 
They face tangible hardships and persecution. It's a great reminder that as outside cultural forces press in, the unity of our church and with fellow Christians becomes more important and necessary. In times of stress and hardship, we ought to draw closer together, not farther apart. So the message this morning ought to be convicting. Fulfilling God's command for unity applies to each of us and requires love and humility. This leads to some points of application. How do we live harmoniously with one another when we are a diverse group of people with a whole variety of preferences, traditions, and opinions? I'd like to go back to verse 8 because Peter gives us some important characteristics for unity within this church. You might want to write these down. You can apply these to your marriage and family as well. Today we're going to apply these to our church. First, unity requires brotherly love. Now this was the main focus of Pastor Stephen's sermon a couple of months ago when he preached on 1 Peter 1, verses 22 to 25, where Peter instructs us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I encourage you to go online, listen to that sermon again, because Stephen developed this command in much more detail than I will today. But since Peter felt it was necessary to repeatedly instruct his readers to love one another, it seems appropriate for us to hear it again today, especially as it relates to living harmoniously with other believers. Now, the gold standard for relating to each other in love can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This famous love chapter was written in the context of the church. Paul's instructions for the Corinthian church ought to undergird how we relate to each other, especially when we face disagreement. Paul writes, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. How well do these verses describe your attitude, your motivation, or your interactions with other believers? Love is patient. You might need to count to 10 before responding to a church member that has rubbed you the wrong way. Or maybe count to 100. Patient love recognizes that conflict often takes longer to resolve than we would like. Patient love also appreciates that your hot-button issue might not be someone else's hot-button issue, and that's okay. Love is kind. It is not rude. Obviously, your word choices with other believers should not include put-downs or name-calling. This includes conversations, emails, text messages, social media posts, It means you listen, you avoid interrupting, you don't always need to get in the last word. And when someone has said something hurtful, it means you don't attack that person and you don't avoid that person. Love is not resentful or insistent. When you find yourself disagreeing with another believer on a matter of preference, don't allow it to lead to resentment, which can lead to slander or gossip. 
If we want to be a church that is harmonious, we need to relate to each other and approach our differences with brotherly love. You may need to pray for the Holy Spirit to develop the fruit of love in your heart and for guidance how to live that out in your unique circumstances. Second, unity requires sympathy and a tender heart. This means we take time to understand each other and our unique experiences and circumstances. We put ourselves in the other person's shoes and treat them tenderly. It means saying, just get over it, is usually not helpful. It requires discernment when to press in to address a matter directly and when it's better to show you care. Relating to each other with sympathy and a tender heart also means you don't value an argument more than a person. In fact, it means taking steps to prevent a disagreement from becoming an argument. Acting with sympathy and tenderness means we are not quarrelsome, judgmental, or divisive. Third, unity requires humility. There's much more we could say about the importance of humility in the church. Fortunately, Peter returns to this topic in chapter 4, so we'll have a dedicated sermon on humility. But I think we can get out of balance when we start thinking that the way we view things is the only right way to view it. We frame matters as I'm right and you're wrong presuming there's a one-size-fits-all approach that Christians must follow. Having a humble mind is one that doesn't jump to conclusions, understands and appreciates that different people can view the same issue differently and doesn't turn matters of opinion into matters of right or wrong moral issues. I think the issue of mask wearing is one that merits humility. I'm just going to be honest with you. This is me speaking, not the Lord. Uh, It's a hotly debated topic, which is a signal that it should be approached with humility. Just speaking personally, I've talked with a medical doctor that thinks masks don't help much. I've talked with another medical doctor that thinks masks are very helpful. I've read articles written by people who have studied this topic way more than I have, and these articles reach differing conclusions. I bring this up not to make a case about wearing masks or not, I bring it up because I think it's a good example of where believers will legitimately disagree on the topic and there's no reason that that should cause division or discord or disharmony. We should approach subjects like that with a huge dose of humility. Before I move to verses 9 through 12, let me just give you a couple diagnostic questions to ask yourself. When I find myself disagreeing with another believer, is the issue more about my own preference or is it about my Savior and his word? How am I modeling the value of unity to my kids? Do I sound divisive or judgmental when I talk about church or church members? Or are my words seasoned with sympathy, brotherly love, tenderness, and humility? Am I considering the whole counsel of Scripture on this particular issue? Am I communicating with believers in a way that shows I believe the gospel is most important? There's much more we could unpack on this, but I want to briefly look at verses 9 through 12. Uh, So the second uh, uh, point here is Christians relating to the world. 
Having addressed Christians relating to Christians in verse 8, Peter revisits instructions he has already given about relating to the world. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called. Now by now you might be tired of hearing Peter continuing to give these types of pacifist instructions towards outsiders. He wrote about in chapter 2, verses 1, 12, 15, 19, 21. And it's coming again in chapter 3, verse 17. Verse 9 closely parallels what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, You are blessed when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake and blessed when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Jesus instructed his followers to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He said we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Paul similarly wrote in Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. This is our calling as Christians. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 21. And again here in verse 9, for to this you were called. So when you face opposition and hostility for your faith, in your school, in your workplace, online, or, or just in your community, your calling is to pray for those who oppose you, do good to those who plan evil against you, and bless those who revile you. This does not mean you are weak, or timid, or limply tolerating injustice, that, that mindset is a false dichotomy, and we should reject that. It takes a tremendous amount of strength and courage to not fight fire with fire, to turn the other cheek, to do good to those who persecute you. That is not a weak response. That is a strong response. Moreover, Christians can take a both-and approach. Praise God, we live in a country where we have constitutional rights and we elect our governing authorities. It is good and proper to appeal to our rights, to stand against injustice, and to shine our light of Christ brightly to the world around us. You can do that without repaying evil for evil. Finally, an encouraging promise. We need an encouraging promise after a message like this morning. Maybe Peter felt that as well as he wrote this. I know I felt the, wheat, the weight of this message all week, so I found encouragement in this promise. At the end of verse 9, Peter writes that by keeping the instructions from verses 8 to 9, you will obtain a blessing. He then quotes from Psalm 34, the promises... That, that, that Psalm 34, that promises the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Now, to be clear, Peter is not suggesting a works-based salvation here. We know from the context of this letter, he is writing to believers. So the blessing is to believers. And the encouragement is that righteous behavior leads to God's blessing, both present and future. The parallel with Matthew chapter 5 is noteworthy. Jesus said, oops, I jumped ahead. 
Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Matthew 5, 6. Striving for unity in our church and with other believers is one way we seek peace and pursue it. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Showing sympathy, brotherly love, and tenderness toward each other are acts of mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Having a humble mind is a form of meekness. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So be encouraged this morning to persevere in the hard calling to follow Jesus. Your faithful obedience results in God's favor, his blessing in this life and for eternity. In this life, you will see good days, verse 10. Now, this doesn't mean you escape hardship or persecution. Peter's already written about that. And even Psalm 34 says there that many are the afflictions of the righteous. It does mean that you can experience contentment and satisfaction in the life God has given you regardless of your circumstances. And verse 12 reminds us that God is all-knowing, always present, and the perfect judge. No evil will go unpunished. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You can bless others, even those who oppose you and revile you, knowing that God will judge perfectly in the end. Your faithful obedience means that Lord is caring for you, providing for you, and hearing your prayers unhindered. And as we studied at the beginning of this letter, we are blessed in this life with the hope knowing that Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So be encouraged this morning to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind to pursue peace, to not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Will you join me as I close in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope we have in you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you give us to encourage us, to lead us, to strengthen us, and convict us. Lord, help our church be one that is united and harmonious, that we may shine brightly for you in the world around us. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.